this is my new installation, Tiger Woods and the Ballerina. And I call this launching. And I see the little ballerina is my granddaughter, who is the only child, grandchild, girl. That I and uh, she's admiring the golfer ready to launch. It's not about golf, it's about the formal theory being launched. And so this is the present that I gave myself for my 80th birthday, a sculpture. But what is interesting is the way we're looking at art, not just as a pretty art, but as the context of a story. And it is telling you the story of our educational program. We want to create an awareness of the new paradigm. The point that I like to make here is starting with the head of the wizard on the hill, who is uh, an, an Easter Island head. And Easter Island is in kind of having a lot of these heads, representations of the universal need for morality and uh, wisdom. And uh, there are no people there, it's just heads. And, and you wonder what happened to the island. I look at it as a paradigm of what is happening in the world today where religions are dominating the globe, but the globe is self-destructing. And so this is a wizard who has written all these stories and he's crying and he says, how come after all my stories, the world is not living happily ever after? And next to the wizard is a scale and the scale represents science. It represents my voice. And the scale says to the wizard, don't despair. The secrets to happiness are in all stories. But instead of believing them, like fanatics do, be a scientist and see what is universal in all stories. And what is universal is the plot, is the conflict resolution mechanism. And so now we're coming close here to see what is the conflict resolution manifestation in art. And here you have a lady and three dragons. There is conflict here. A lady comes to the Wilburton Inn and is surrounded by dragons. It's kind of scary. And this is what conflict is about. This is what all fairy tales are about, ladies and dragons. What is interesting is at the end of the fairy tale, you have happily ever after. And what you're seeing there is a kiss, boy and girl kissing, that's love. And you see the embrace, which doesn't matter what gender you are. It's through columns embracing. And I call it twin towers as well. And I call it the civil union as well, because you can see it doesn't matter what the gender is, but it is the idea of love. Now, here comes science. You know, this is a fairy tale. Now, we are in, interested in introducing in this phenomenon, the science. And this is where you can see there is something predictable from conflict to resolution. And this is where I'm introducing the science of the pendulum oscillation, the energy, and how the mind works predictably, transforming the energy of conflict to the energy of resolution. So the, what the mind does is very much like photosynthesis by chlorophyll in the trees. The mind transforms energy from a low, non-organized state to an delicate, to ent negative entropy. And that's where the unconscious stops going back and forth. You have the end in three oscillations. And I have a sculpture here of this circular six-year-old process. And at the end of it, I have a family. And I'm trying to show how 
the mind is predictable. And I'm also having a scale, which has been given to me as a present. It hasn't arrived yet, but it will be placed there. So from here, we go now to see how a cycle of basically women's sculptures show the transformation of women from the powerful and scary women of the matriarchy to the kindest woman in the evolution as Virgin Mary, an angel. And how the women in this kind of war of the genders over the epics recorded by the big poems of the world have been transformed gradually to kinder animals <laughs> and beautiful people, but at the same time unapproachable because they're supposed to be virginal. And so there is Mexico, where you see matriarchy. There is Greece, which is patriarchy. There is Indian and uh, Buddhist uh, cultures, uh, China, Japan. Then there is Mesopotamia, and uh, all of these are stories with epics. And then finally, you have the Abrahamic religions. So, folks, you have arrived at Mexico, and Mexico is the cruelty of family relations as extremely powerful mother earth who has the features of the eagles, the necklace of severed hands and hearts and skulls, and she has a fear of her daughter. So she's asking her son to kill her daughter. And so here you have the son and the daughter as the sun and the moon, and you have the face of the mother, the cruel mother uh, manifested in sculptures of the Aztecs. And the, there is another addition to this, which is the as the calendar, which presents the four cycles of destruction of the universe, and the fifth is impending. And to avert that impending destruction, you have to keep on sacrificing, live sacrifices, taking people up on the pyramid, taking their hearts out, and giving them to Chuck Mool, who is receiving them on behalf. So this is where we start. And Greece had a phase of matriarchy as well, but they managed to move from matriarchy in Greece to patriarchy. And let me show you the Greek women across. Now we're arriving to patriarchy in Greece. What you can see there is a sphinx. The sphinx is a funny presentation of a woman that manifests in Egypt, manifests in Russia, manifests in Greece. And what I look at it, I see the woman who is flight and fight. And the woman that impersonates that in history is Helen of Troy. Helen of Troy represents the matriarchal woman who has a lot of lovers. And the Greek lovers tell her, we don't get along too well, we cannot share. Make up your mind, choose one of us, and she chooses Menelaus of Sparta. And the rest of us are going to watch that you stay with that choice. And guess what? <laughs> A guy comes around, he looks handsome, and she flies the coop. That's Paris of Troy. And then the Greek men say, you know, he took your vows, come back. And he says, come and get me, she becomes a lion. So you see the drama of helping to domesticate women. So the, the Greek epics is the poetry of dealing with women and transforming Helen of Troy, who is the fight and flight woman, to a woman who stays home and puts up with aggravation from men and is being tested royally by men. That is the sculpture of Penelope. And Penelope is watching from up there her husband this is the Mediterranean, and he's chair hopping, bed hopping, <laughs> island hopping, and she has to be loyal. You know, she has a party every night with the pseudos who are impatient to love her. She says, let me finish this shroud. And so she knits in the daytime and she unravels at nighttime. I see her also as the woman caught between temptation, 
and becoming obsessive compulsive as the Greek solution of postponing the surrendering. But anyway, the, the happy ending is that Ulysses manages to encounter the matriarchal women across his travels. In the beginning, he ties himself on the mast of the boat, so he does not surrender to the sirens who are going to destroy him. But he does surrender himself to a number of beautiful ladies on the way. You remember some names? Circe, Nausicaa is a good princess. So we have a number of interesting women, Calypso, who transform his partners into animals, but they love him and they want to keep him forever. But he manages to figure out how to escape them. So the, the Greek culture is about dealing with women, beginning with the mother who likes to kill the father in the creation stories, to resolving gradually the problems of the gods and then finding stories of humans and then continuing in the Greek culture to try to figure out how to create a better philosophy of life. And Aristotle is the one who looked at the Greek tragedies and he said, here we have something very abstract, beginning, middle and end. At the end you have a moral discovery, Deus ex machina, God comes from a pulley representing the verdict of the gods for the protagonist who is committing a hubris and gets punished. So the Greeks contributed not only conflict resolution as role models, but they contributed abstraction about what is happening in stories. And I felt I'm continuing the Aristotelian analysis by introducing science into this process and understanding that there are physics of energy, the morality, directions, alternatives, and we have to finish the job in our times and reconcile the world and find peace. So to see the evolution of the restructuring of family relations from here, we went from Mexico to Greece, we're going from Greece to India. So what I would like to share with you here is how India has changed the paradigm of power structure in family relations. And what you're seeing there is three big wheels which is the moon waxing and waning, which is the powerful Kali who has three sets of arms. And here I have presented her as the powerful entity of India with the sacred cows representing her as well in Main Street. And here is the consort of Kali as Shiva who is stepping on a child. And that would look cruel, stepping on a child. And the story that goes along with it has something to do with the family dynamics. Kali appointed her son, Ganesha, as the threshold of her bedroom and said, keep them out. And then Shiva comes around, who uh, is annoyed with the child and decapitates him. Kali protests about this and Shiva gives to the child a head of an elephant. So the family lives happily ever after with the child who has a new head, the head of an elephant. And Ganesha is a very kind child. He likes to play with mice. He likes to have fun. And so you see, India discovered cooperation. So we have Greece discovering power, reciprocity, from powerlessness to power. India is discovering from antagonism in Greece to cooperation in India. And we'll see the third discovery, which is mutual respect, which is the contribution of the Abrahamic family monotheism. So we move from matriarchy to patriarchy to asceticism. Now, Buddha is a story of an ascetic person who gave up being a prince and he gave up his horse and his uh, long hair and his family life to become an ascetic wanderer. 
But someplace on the way, before wasting his life away with his self-discipline, he becomes enlightened. And he's transforming asceticism of Hinduism into Buddhism, which values life as pain, desire as creating pain, but restraint of desire, following the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment as the meaning of life. And so Buddhism has a very good philosophy of power management and decreasing the amount of experiencing conflict. And the idea is to reduce conflict and being able to stop being reborn <laughs> and go to nirvana, where if you have no conflicts, that's where life stops. <laughs> You're not reborn and there is relief. Of course, the Greeks would like to be immortal, but in India you like to die <laughs> because life is suffering. And I put this uh, sculpture here to show the significance of the child, not only with Ganesha, but this is the inner child, the selfish child, who is me, me, me. <laughs> that is the little kid underneath. But this is the inner child. It's not just somebody outside. And so I'm interpreting the Hindu philosophy as the experience of yoga, where you breathe deep in many different ways, with many different ohms, freeing yourself from desires of being a little kid with selfish, egocentric, and becoming you know, kind of like this dancer in good balance. And all the symbolism of balance are there. I'm also using the pedestal that is underneath, the gears with cogs, to show that the human becomes a cog in the big wheel, rather than being the big wheel that he is in Greece. <laughs> the Indian philosophy is let us be into a system of enlightenment where we're willing to surrender our personal individualism. So here you have a station of Buddha, and you can see how different this man is in terms of relating to power and how self-contained he is. This is the idea of self-containment and of power management, of finding in, inner peace of mind. And this is where this kind of concept is affecting our culture today in America as recognizing the value of meditation as the healing alternative. Here we have an interesting station of abstract art. This is a very different kind of art. This is science. And we have two exhibits, two stations, two installations to talk about what is the alternative to the stories and see where the story can be transformed into science. And these are the three equilibrial principles of the scale that I was telling you about. The idea of seeing the balance being restored either by removing the weight, which is moving the weight as clockwise or counterclockwise, this single big stone representing the concept of opposites, clockwise or counterclockwise. This is a pendulum which moves back and forth and for me it symbolizes passivity or activity, surrendering power or looking for power. And this is the, the third principle of conflict resolution, which is alienation versus mutual respect. So if you have the stone at the lower level or at the higher level, you either have alienation, but if you put it in the middle, you have mutual respect. And so this is a good symbolism of how an artist creates science without knowing it for it. Again, this is my interpretation. It's not the artist who created these alternatives, but I see them and I say, oh, please, let me have them because they have a symbolic significance about what means balance. Now, here you see the three principles of science that are artistically displayable. 
And what you see in the back there, you see another abstract sculpture. And the artist arranged those blocks of marble as three piles and then a single stone as counterpoint. So you see the three acts of a play and the resolution. The mirrors represent that the creative process is self-reflexive, which has a structure you see yourself. Now from here we go back to the mythology of stories, the poetry of family relations. And what you're coming to is a sculpture of a woman who represents the Adam and Eve story. And it's nice to see her with colors, with beautiful art around her. This is the Gilgamesh story. And the Gilgamesh story is the beginning of the Bible story. 5,000 years ago, or even longer, there was a story about a woman who is inviting Gilgamesh, a prince, to be her lover. And she says, I'll spread a carpet for you. I'll give you all sorts of treasures. Be my boyfriend. And he refuses her. And he says, what did you do with your lover from last year? And don't want you to hurt my feelings like that. I would rather fight you rather than love you. And then there is a war. And in this war, he has a companion. And his name is Enkidu, who is like a superman. And guess what happens to him? He's like Samson and Delilah. They seduce him and they kill him. And the end of the story is about Gilgamesh looking for his friend, talking about immortality. And the Bible finishing up that story by defining the Superman as God and finding the concept of the alternative to a woman who can hurt your feelings, get you out of paradise like the Adam and Eve story, as finding God, finding love in pursuing God. And this is the beginning of the biblical story, both in showing that women are not reliable love sources. They get you out of paradise, they get you in trouble. But God is a very comfortable entity that you can make it as beautiful as your poetry can get him. And so Bible discovered this story and evolved the story. And you have Abraham coming into power, breaking his father's pagan idols, which is beautiful Grecian voluptuous women. And Abraham was misogynist in some ways. He also, according to the stories, he peddled his wife. He said, pretend you're my sister and get me some friends. It's terrible, but you know, that's how the Bible has recorded the evolution of Abraham in his relationship with women. And then to compound things, she has two women with two children who are fighting who is going to prevail. And we'll talk about how Abraham managed to deal with women resolving the problem and creating a better God, a better definition of the family. But here is a chapter in the evolution of family relations. Beautiful woman, tempers is a dangerous thing. And that's why eventually they cover the woman up and only let her eyes through. Another exhibit, this is my masterpiece, you could say. Inside we have beautiful murals talking about the creative process in mythology, in religions, in personal creativity, and in therapy. On the outside, we have the story of the Wizard of Oz. And inside of this square pavilion is about one of the disciplines. Like the Yellow Brick Road is about the science of the process of conflict resolution. The four characters walking the road are the four ways of resolving conflict, the four identities, the four personality types. I mentioned to you about Dorothy and the lion, the cowardly lion as the dominant, the scarecrow and the tin man as the submissive. Behind we have killing the witch, which symbolizes, again, family feud. The wizard expects his, the children to kill one parent. But in the process of killing the mother, you kill up your dependency needs and you find yourself using creativity for self-discovery. And in that sense, this celebrates 
creativity for self-discovery as therapy. And then the fourth side is about Oz, which is about religion. And I have three panels there. And one of them is about Yigdal, the principles of faith. It's about the Ten Commandments as principles of conflict resolution and prayer, Adonalam, which is a prayer about God is great and God is, you know, the thing that we should all admire. But instead of saying God is God, we're saying the creative process. So if we can all pay respect to the creative process, which has the science of conflict resolution, we're all being the same page. And then we stop being, killing each other because we believe in one story versus the others. Okay, now we go to the Abrahamic station. The artist is Bill Harvey, who also did The Kiss and the Embrace in the front. And he used Vermont marble. He stayed with us, became friends, and he bequeathed it to the Wilburton Inn. And uh, it was on display in a major sculptural exhibit. And I treasure it because I see in it the manifestation of the unconscious as a logical process of three entities here fighting with each other but evolving and coming to the resolution which is single stone. And so I see conflict and resolution all bound together beautifully artistically, symbolically. So we have the two things about the unconscious. We have the principles of balance which are the basis of creating an inventory to see your personality type according to questions. And we have this symbolizing the creative process by using metaphors and putting them together to see your story. And these are the emotions that produce the insights and the direction for changes that you read about people who took the testing online. All right, so now we continue back to the stories, mythology, religions, and seeing the evolution of the family system. And I call this broken joy because that was a nice sculpture, fell down, and uh, unfortunately we lost it, but we didn't lose it completely because it became a sculpture showing the transition of the role of a woman. Broken joy is giving us the new joy, which is the wheel as a symbolism of Genesis, the symbolism of God creating the universe in six days and day of celebration. So you see the paradigm shift from the beautiful girl to the beautiful story as a periodic phenomenon. So here I'm saying religions discovered science because saying six days of creation now really is identifying the six emotions of the conflict resolution mechanism, which is universal. And let's celebrate the seventh day as sitting back and uh, praying and enjoying being a family, not being distracted by work. And the Jewish tradition does justice to that concept. The significance of this woman in the context of the other women that I have shown you, starting with the Aztec mother who is cruel and wants her daughter dismembered, going through the Sphinx of the Greeks, going through the Kali, the sacred cow, going to Japan, seeing the woman as a geisha, evolving to the uh, beautiful, voluptuous Ishtar of the Gilgamesh epic, being broken down by Abraham, in the sculpture that you see, Abraham, the broken joy, seeing her both as the angry camel and also the kindness of this mother who is giving up her child and who is giving up her sexuality. And you see my pain in seeing this as the definitive way of resolving conflict in family relations. All right, this is a sculpture that in 84 was at the Lincoln Center. 
This is a typical sculpture where I'm creating a story. This, this, this is the altar for the sacrifice of Isaac. And so what you're seeing here, three guys on top of thrones that are 18 feet tall. And what you're seeing in front of them is four little ladies. And some of them are holding wine bottles and glasses for the men. And then you see also two big birds, Horus birds, which is a curiosity. But the constellation is what I did with the story, understanding it as representing the Abrahamic family and the inequity between men and women. So you have three huge guys, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you have the afterthought, which is the four little women, which now we have incorporated in some prayers. And you have then the big birds, which I call the chicks or the concubines with beaks to peck on the wives, to show how in, in, <laughs> aggravating it is to see that becoming a holy paradigm, respected universally as the role model for happiness. And this is the trouble that we have today with stories, that people believe that this is the way things should be. Because it was a story that we sanctified as the Word of God. And people are unable to think beyond the story, sacrificing themselves to kill others or doing crazy things that destroy the economy, destroy the world, destroy one country or another. And this is the problem of having Jerusalem as dedicated to one religion. And so this is where I'm trying to appeal to people who are thinking of this being a celebration of an accomplishment of having improved the family because women step down and allow the guys, father, son, grandson, to be happy with each other, praying to God. God has unified the family. And women say to the child, respect your father. If your father wants to sacrifice, you carry the wood. And here we come to another sculpture which I have created. Unfortunately, this is the third generation of this sculpture. I had beautiful wood originally. But the idea is this is the altar for the sacrifice of Isaac and the test of love. And I have an explanation on this story. Abraham was really testing his wives and his children. And he created a story to see who was the better choice for his successor. And he told his women and his children, God is asking me to sacrifice a child. Which one of you is willing to let me sacrifice your child? And my position, my interpretation is Hagar said, don't touch my kid, I'd rather be in the desert. And Sarah turns out to say to the kid, listen to your father, and if he wants to sacrifice you, carry the wood. And guess what? Abraham didn't want to sacrifice him. Abraham loved his son, but he wanted to find out you know, how does he, what kind of an attitude does he have? Is he antagonistic or is he cooperative? Is he respectful? Does he have use of the divine as the ultimate commanding authority? And so this is an interesting analysis of the biblical story that Abraham listened to God to sacrifice his child. That would have been very cruel and very stupid for a man to say, I'll sacrifice my kid because anybody tells me to do that. But I think it is much more plausible philosophically that he was testing. And Solomon tested the mothers, who is the true mother of the child, who is willing to let go. And letting go is the idea of thinking of somebody else rather than yourself. So here is the idea of improving family relations in the Abrahamic way. 
And this is the family model that was accepted universally as better than the Greek model. And so the Roman culture, which was into violence, antagonism, you know, recently I went to Rome to see the antiquities of the Colosseum, the cruelty of the Colosseum, and next to it, see the Vatican, and see the Vatican exalting Jesus, the man who suffers, rather than the violent person who kills and gets to be the hero. And so it's interesting to see cultures evolving, paradigms evolving. But a lot of the paradigms, you know, like Greece, who had the Olympian gods, and Romans, in a kind of a similar way, had their divinities, they abandoned them for the better family. And it was women who introduced Christianity in Rome. And uh, it is women who eventually shifted the capital from Rome to Constantinople, a place to start this new culture away from pagan religions. And so I'm saying religions are political solutions. And at this point, we need science as the political solution. And what kind of monuments will the world build for me? Spiral staircases. <laughs> Let's go down below. Now, we're going to see the evolution of the Abrahamic religions and the Messianic religions, but we have a digression on looking at the stories of the 20th century. You have to worry about stories. And what you're seeing here is the good story and the bad stories. And the good story are presented here with a white sculpture as the bride and the groom. So the bride is a book. <laughs> and the groom is a rabbi with a big nose. You can see the scroll on his shoulder and his hand pointing to Jerusalem. So this is a good story that inspires you. But at the same time, we talked about the Abrahamic story dividing the Abrahamic religions. Now, beyond that is my Holocaust memorial. And I have tribute to Marx and Freud and Hitler. Marx is presented with some beautiful sculptures that are mounted on top of violet safety deposit boxes because he was saying justice in the world is economic rebellion distribute money to everybody as, as they need and let them produce as they can produce. And that was the problem that divided the world in the 20th century between capitalism and communism. And f people forgot about religions. But what happened at the end, that paradigm failed. And we still have the survival of this uh, failure of this paradigm with North Korea menacing the world and Castro with Cuba and you know maybe China to some extent. So is that a good story? It is a story of conflict. It meant well but he divided the world. And then the next one is my tribute to Freud. So what you're seeing there is the chapel of Venus and of Pinus and there is an upturned toilet as well in the back. And so what I'm sarcastically presenting here is that Freud's solution is ridiculous as well because he identified humans as Oedipus and saying, okay, you know, if you see the Second World War, it's manifestation of my theory of violence and nastiness on the world, rather than being able to say, you know, this is unacceptable selfish behavior on a criminal who is trying to eliminate his opponents. And uh, all of these theories evolved out of Darwin's theory of evolution, which talks about the survival of the fittest. And our friend Hitler, who is up on top of a pyramid of violent safety deposit boxes, he's behind bars. I put him there and resolving my issues with him. And I found a very interesting sculpture of his head and I put it behind bars. On top of Uber Alice in cruelty, surpassing everybody. 
surpassing the Jewish cruelties by far, and putting him behind these furnaces and the chimneys, representing the violation of humanity. And one of these furnaces has a swastika on it, and I found it in my basement, and it was produced 100 years ago as the first furnace of the inn. And the swastika was just decorative, not particularly into the Nazi things. But the whole issue is what? What I'm trying to say is that stories are dangerous and that we need a new paradigm. And what is the new paradigm? Is it going to be another story? No. What we're saying here is that we can understand conflict resolution as the key paradigm. As how the mind works predictably in all stories and all stories have a happy, happy ending. And so you see the spiral staircase there behind the bushes. And so I call it the Jacob's Ladder because Jacob wrestled with God right before having to deal with his brother, Esau. And wrestling with God means being able to negotiate with the normative system, being able to change some things. Although he was second in command in terms of birthright, he still had the right to prevail. And so on top of that spiral staircase, which is the tribute to the process, I have Gorbachev and I have myself. <clears throat> and it's not for me to extol myself, but it's to remind people that we have a new paradigm and we have to fight for it and we have to educate people with it and that there is a solution to the impasse of morality that we have now because all religions now are claiming to be the truth and they're only partial truths and so you walk through the pagan religions now you're seeing the Abrahamic religions and the scriptures. The next sculptural station is virtual Jerusalem besieged by the chariots of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great brought 500 before Christ to Jerusalem, creating some confusion between how to be a boy or a girl in that culture, creating conflicts between the original Jewish values and the contemporary Greek values, getting girls pregnant and ready to stone them. And Jesus came into the picture to say, you know, who, is, who has the right to throw the stone and changing the family structure, protecting women from violence. These are the chariots of Alexander the Great who invaded Greece, invaded the Middle East and created new values for Jerusalem. So this is a little sanctuary here made of pine trees as a circle. And inside we have the rabbis talking about the law and peripherally we're having women because the Greeks created conflict between men and women by bringing in different kind of norms about man and woman. And they brought the angry woman from Greece, <laughs> who is rebellious, never on Sunday. She likes to have fun, to dance, to dress up, to go to the beauty parlor. And uh, then Jesus came to rescue women from cruel rabbis who were saying, the law says you stone a woman for straying. And the, the, the Islamic fundamentalists still do that. If you get disgraced because a girl has had some kind of relationship, she better be dead. And uh, this is where, you know, being orthodox in the Abrahamic tradition creates conflict in family relations and imposes some values to women that are not fair. But this is the reason that the messianic religions came about because of the influence of one culture, the Greek culture, which has a different norm for a woman and a man. 
So it happened during the times 500 years before until Jesus. You have the Maccabeans who are choosing kings and give them Greek names like Aristobulus means the person who has good attitude and Alexander. And so they had adopted cultural things from Greece. They were speaking Greek. They were translating the Bible in Greek. And the Greek influence was very paramount. So people undid the circumcisions. They went to the gym and they didn't like to look Jewish. <laughs> and the girls didn't like to be covering faces, <laughs> being too uh, respectful of old norms. So here you have a cultural impact like America is doing now to the Middle East, changing the norms there. And that's why Islam is very angry with America, because they're changing the norms. And that's where you have the ISIS as the fanatic way of believing the norms of the law, the old law coming back activated and becoming supercharged about it. And so the ISIS was trying to reestablish the caliphate as a concept of true faith. But uh, they are history now, but you, you can see how the world has to change norms beyond the Greek values, beyond the Jewish values, beyond the, you know, different norms described by the book. And we have to find out how to make the best new paradigm, the best new choices based on principles of law rather than moral law made by dogma. I put the logs here as ways of representing ramparts. And I put in the center the men sitting around a sculpture of Moses. You can see the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and Moses is inspired by the symmetry of the moon, ecstatic about the notion of God and the laws. And then while they're making the laws, the dress code for Jerusalem, we have women periphery. There's one back there and one here. And that woman over there says, girls are as good as boys which is a protesting, you know, the first march in Jerusalem about politics. And this woman says, God is not with the father and the son. He's with the mother and the child, which again shifts the political system of what is right and wrong in family relations. So you can see, this is an interesting sculpture of a Catholic woman who is protesting at the Catholic values. And she is still an active person in the community. Her name is Kalomitsky, and she's from a Catholic tradition, and she's rebelling at that. And she has the, the women uh, presented as oppressed by the culture. Now, from here, we're going to the final phase of the sculptural trail, and it is about the scriptures of the one God, the three different ways telling you how to behave. And one is the book, of the Bible, presented by two birds that are standing up tall, singing, making noise, enjoying a positive attitude. Then there is the Quran, where the birds are within a cage, they cannot fly freely. And then there is the Christian book, which presents women as uh, underneath a crown of thorns, with two birds underneath cooking to become chicken soup of the soul, and a rooster to be cooked as a cocova. For the, for the clergyman. So remember, this is all about the paradigm shift from stories that people believe and are divided by 
to what is universal in all stories. And so I'm presenting here the problems of the world today divided by three books. This is the Bible, this is the Quran, and there is the New Testament. And there is the alternative. This is the Pegasus in the center of a labyrinth. The labyrinth has been undone, <laughs> but we're going to reconstruct it. But the labyrinth, for me, is the plot of stories. And in the middle of the plot of stories, you have Pegasus as an example of how to learn how to be a bird flying, being able to be creative. And so how to be a bird is very defining, confining with these stories where the bird is beautiful but has to be in a cage, that he's, you know, singing about things but getting killed, persecuted, or there where you have the values of the New Testament with all the dogma-based stories about a woman having a child with God and everything else about a human originating and destined to a magical life. And so talking about the conclusion of this sculptural trail in the history of love, I'm bringing you here to see that love is defined differently by different books, by different stories. But we have the possibility of defining love scientifically as a conflict resolution mechanism by looking at what is in this magical thing of a labyrinth, which has a spiritual nature. And you walk the labyrinth and it's walking your story. And I have different little animals back there, which are metaphors of choices people make in their stories to find out who they are. And I have a couple of little pigs with wings. And I say, if only we little pigs can learn how to fly, then the world will be happy. So there is a hooper there for getting married to creativity. Thank you all, and please, you know, feel free to share your thoughts about this. Question.